resurrection. Um, at the next feast, which is the Passover, he will, he will give his life. So he's about six months out as we find him here. And last week we, talk about, we talked about his focus in that he did not let the things of this world, and in last week's case, his brothers, deter him from doing and being on God's timeline. He was concerned with what God wanted him to do. He wasn't concerned about what his brothers thought he should do, uh, what others might have thought he should do. Uh, in a sense, he could even say even in himself. Uh, he wasn't concerned about his own agenda. He was concerned about the agenda that God had for him. He wanted to be on God's timetable. But within that timetable, uh, I would suggest to you, to the glorious praise of our God, Jesus spent time teaching. Uh, he was consistently teaching. He has taught his disciples. He teaches this crowd uh, that really, as we have learned already in this gospel, he understands the hearts and minds of men and women, of why they come, of what their expectation of him is, of how they're going to respond to the text. He knows it all. Yet, that does not keep him from still explaining the text, still proclaiming who he is, proclaiming what God the Father has called him to do. So in this section of Scripture, we'll see the teaching of Jesus. Last week, the focus of Jesus. This week, the teaching of Jesus. And what I pray we see is the teachings of Jesus will educate those who seek the will of the Father, as we'll see. And secondly, it is exposing. It will expose the motivations of the self-righteous. So the Word of God always does two things in any given sermon. Uh, any given proclamation, any given teaching, it's going to draw God's people prayerfully closer to them him, himself or drive some away from him. Uh, I will have none of this Jesus. Uh, uh, Fosdick would say, do away with your theological Christ. Give me Christ, the moral teacher. I pray that that's not you this morning. I pray you're saying, no, give me Christ, the theological teacher. Give me Christ, who is indeed the son of God, the glorious one, the holy one as Peter would proclaim. Give me him. Yes, I appreciate his morality. I appreciate his ethical teaching, but I want the, the God-man. I want him faithfully proclaimed. So in this section, I pray that we will maybe this morning, by the grace of God, say, which, which group am I in? Am I in that group that's seeking God's face and wanting more, or am I the self-righteous? And a lot of this has to do, brothers and sisters, with how we'll approach the word of God how we look at the Word of God this morning. This devotional was shared with a group of folks the, um, a few nights ago, and I wanted to share part of it with you. Some of you know uh, the ministry of Paul David Tripp, uh, and his brother Ted Tripp, and just great, great uh, servants of the kingdom and been very, very beneficial to the, to the church. He says this about the Bible, and I pray that we remember this this morning. God never intended the Bible to be an end in and of itself, but rather a means to an end. Scripture has much has a much greater purpose than to give you a comprehensive religious mind. The Old and New Testaments are meant to provide more than a history and a theological confession. In other words, brothers and sisters, we don't come in this room just to become cerebral in our understanding of theology. We don't come here just to learn. It's supposed to produce something. Tripp says these words. Their primary purpose is not information, but transformation. The Word of God is not intended just to lay claim on your brain, but also to capture your heart and transform the way you live. The Bible is meant to turn you inside out and your world upside down. And to that, Brother Tripp, I say, amen. May it have its way in us this morning and truly turn us inside out and turn our world upside down. In this section of Scripture, I want to point out prayerfully six different things from you that, for you that we'll see in these series of verses beginning in verse 14. Let's read together. But it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. 
The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks, excuse me, but he who is seeking the glory of one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel? For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. This is the word of the Lord. As I reminded you at the beginning of this sermon, Jesus is not deterred by unbelief. He is not deterred or intimidated by crowds. Uh, He is not moved by the mere whims of men who desire to maybe see him do or say something that they think he should do or say. He is moved solely by the work of his father. What he wants me to do and say, I will do and say. And we see here from the very beginning, there's a question regarding the capability of Jesus in verses 14 and 15. Now, as we learned last week, Jesus refrained initially from going up to the feast, and he technically does not involve himself in the events of the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths. He goes somewhere else, and we should not be surprised where we find Jesus here, should we, in verse 14. We find him in the temple. And what is he doing in the temple? He is teaching in the temple, but there's a question raised regarding his teaching in verse 15. How has this man become learned? Or in the Greek, it's really, how has he become lettered? How does he know these things? He's never been educated. D.A. Carson in his commentator says these words, they were astonished that someone who had not studied in one of the great rabbinical centers of learning or with one of the famous rabbis could have such a command of scripture, such telling mastery in his exposition, end quote. Jesus, his teaching is described as amazing to them. Now, don't take the word amazing as if they're somehow impressed with that teaching. They're simply impressed the fact that he can teach, that he has this information. They are not impressed with the teaching itself. They could really care less about that. They're not concerned about his mastery. They're concerned that he's able to say anything at all. And their reaction here is not one that is favorable. It's actually denouncing, how do you know this? Who are you? But we who are students of Christ should not be surprised that we find Jesus in the temple when we find Jesus in the temple teaching and interacting with others. Can I remind you back in Luke chapter 2 that his family has gone on a journey and they have left Jesus somewhere. And they find out that after three days, they can't find him and they find him in the temple in Luke 2 verse 46, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking questions. Listen to this. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated this way, us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Some of you know Jesus' response, don't we? Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know I had to be in my father's house? 
He had to be with his father. Luke goes on to tell us in verse 52 that Jesus, this young boy, continues or kept increasing in wisdom and stature. Jesus learned, Jesus grew, but this group of religious Jews are surprised that Jesus, how does he know these things? They weren't questioning his his ability to communicate it, but how did he come to know these things? In our modern world, we might say, what seminary did you go to? Who Who ordained you? Whose ministry have you sat under that you can speak things with such authorities? Who credentialed you, Jesus? What authority do you have to teach? And it's important for us to understand that they are concerned that this man, because he doesn't have these letters behind his name, because he hasn't been ordained, because he doesn't quote the right rabbi, his teaching should actually be disregarded. See, they were so concerned about quoting the right guide. Now, I remind you, this is how Jewish folks taught, Jewish religious leaders. They wouldn't necessarily refer to the Old Testament in and of itself. They would also refer to the Mishnah or to those learned rabbis. They would often quote them. They would often make sure that that's how one is approved. What school, rabbinical school, had you sat under? That was important to them. Because if you didn't sit under the right teacher, under the right teaching, then therefore your teaching should be rejected. We're not going to listen to it. We're not going to follow it. Jesus didn't quote the right guys. So therefore, there's a question. Is this guy capable to teach? Well, let's maybe answer that question. Is Jesus capable to teach the word of God? He is more than able because he is the word of God. Uh, Jesus can appeal to things. He could appeal to his own authority that the priests couldn't do, the prophets couldn't do, the kings of old couldn't do. Jesus is able in and of himself to establish truth because he is at one with the Father. It's amazing. Some years ago, I was... Uh, I think it's Office Depot, someplace like that. I think this, that chain is now closed. And, and I remember seeing a man there dressed in all black, and he had a big hat on, um, kind of a big straight hat. Now, if it had been white, <laughs> I'd have probably got out of there. Um, anyway, uh, so if, if, if it was a black outfit, and had this, this long hat on, and I, I immediately was like, okay, he's Eastern Orthodox. Um, and like, he's over by the ink. I'm in there to get paper, but I was like, I got to talk to this guy. So I'm just like, okay, ink, boy, this ink is expensive. I was like, hey, can I ask you a question? Are there any black people that are Eastern Orthodox? See, I wanted to make it light conversation initially. Just like, I, wanted, I don't want to be intimidated. So I said, man, are there any black? He says, you know, that's a good question. I'm sure there are some, some of the church fathers. I was like, man, tell me, help me understand what you guys believe. I, I, I've never talked to someone who's Eastern Orthodox before. Help me understand. And he began to talk about what they believe. And he didn't quote any Bible. You know who he quoted? Church fathers. Church father after church father. And he had, if there was a test for church father quoting, he would have won. By the way, I had no way of referencing whether what they're saying was true, but it sounded very good. And I began to talk to him about scripture. Like, well, what do you believe about salvation? How is one saved? Because I had a little understanding there. Just a kind of a hybrid from the Roman Catholic Church and salvation by works. And I began to talk to him about verses. How do you interpret this? And you know what he said then? He never dealt with the verse. He would say, St. Cyprian interpreted it this way. Church father, this person interpreted it this way. I had never dealt with anyone like that before who had dealt with so much 
referencing church fathers as opposed to just interpreting the text. Like I understand Paul says this, but James chapter two says this, what might lead me to believe that there's you know, some salvation by works. I can deal with that kind of argument, but he, he utilized nothing but church fathers. It's that kind of idea that we see here. The Jewish religious leaders would have quoted, again, things from the Mishnah, things from those learned rabbis. And if you don't fit that bill, Therefore, your teaching is not going to be accepted. That's why they're questioning Jesus here. But Jesus goes on in his argument to talk about some other things. In verse 16, we see the authority of Jesus. My teaching is not mine, but what? Him who sent me. Jesus is here not denying his divine status or his knowledge and wisdom that he has. What he is simply saying is the teaching that I am giving you is not based on personal experience. It's not something just for me and my humanity. It's not just my simple learning or insight. It is teaching from God himself. Jesus doesn't ever quote rabbis. Jesus doesn't even have to say, as the Old Testament prophets would say, what? Thus saith the Lord. Jesus can speak as one of authority. I remind you of what Jesus says in John 8, 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak the things the Father has taught me. John 12, for I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know what His commandment is, eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. We see this response to Jesus's teaching in Matthew 7 that's pretty amazing of what the crowd say. You remember it. After the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds are amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching one as one who has authority and not the scribes. So where does Jesus get this authority from? He tells us, his father. Jesus is authoritative in his teaching. He is more than capable in his teaching. But let's talk about the receptivity. How do I receive what Jesus is teaching? I'm going to spend a little time here. If anyone is willing to do his will, listen to this, how he, this, this is conditional. If anyone is willing to do his will, what's going to happen? He will know of the teaching. The teaching that I am proclaiming, if I'm doing God's will, I'll know if it's of God or whether I speak of myself. That's on the, the, the listener. The listener is going to know whether Jesus, what Jesus is saying is true if he's doing God's will. Conversely, if he is not doing God's will, he or she won't know. So think about that this morning. As we're proclaiming God's word, as God's word is being preached, if I am not doing the will of God, if I am not seeking God's face, then therefore I will not understand whether the teachings of God or if it's of David. If I am seeking God's face, I will begin to understand. Now, let's think about this whole idea of doing God's will. We've seen this kind of language before, even in this gospel. Um, the one who does truth, we see in John 3, 21. The one who does the work of God in John 6, 29. It's all has the same idea. Now think about it this way. Romans 3 tells us there's none who seek God, right? So think about it in this context. God has revealed himself. Now what's the expectation for the, for the listener or for the audience or for those who've been exposed to God teaching through the ministry of Jesus. What's the expectation? Matter of fact, forget the expectation. What's the command? Believe. It's a command to believe, but it's up to the listener at that point. A truth has been revealed. A truth claim has been made. Now I have to sit back. He's revealed something. 
I can either accept it or I'm going to, what am I going to do with this revelation, with this understanding? The expectation in scripture is that I've got to now do something with it. Let me read a couple of verses for you that prayerfully will put more meat on the bone. You will seek the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 4.29, and you will find him if you search for him with your whole heart and soul. So God's showing himself. To see, we have a response, and the hard heart says, no, don't want it. The receptive heart says, I don't understand it. Come on, brothers and sisters, when we hear the word of God, do we always even like it? But it's the word of God. One of us is going to have to change. Guess who it's not going to be? Or what it's not going to be? The word of God. So we talked about the sovereignty of God, but there's also scriptures that talk about the responsibility of man. It's easy for me. I, sovereignty of God is easy, but there is a responsibility of man that man is culpable. You are culpable in this room. I don't care if you're eight or 80, you're culpable for what you hear and what you do with truth proclaimed. David tells Solomon or makes this statement to Solomon. As for you, my son Solomon, Know the God of your father and serve him with your whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Psalmist says in Psalm 192, verse 2, How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with their heart. The psalmist proclaims in Psalm 119, verse 10, with all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. See, there's a responsibility. Not that we're going to understand everything, but Lord, teach your servant. Lord, I, I think we can be this honest with God. Like, God, this I don't understand this sovereignty. God, I've never maybe heard that word before. I, I don't understand this whole idea of responsibility of man. But Lord, I want to seek you. I want to find out. Lord, search me and try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lord, reveal my heart that I might see you and behold you. None of us come here, brothers and sisters, with it all figured out. The one who has it all figured out, please stand and tell us how you did it. We don't have the secret to, maybe you're Gnostic. We are called to pursue him once he has revealed himself. Now, I don't doubt. I have no doubt in my mind that God needs to do the work there, monergistically. But we're responsible to respond. It's his Bible. You're sitting here today. What are you here for? Parents make you. Wife make you. Husband make you. Something to do, it's cold, I know it'll be warm in here. Why are you here? Are you here to seek the living God? Are you truly singing this, oh, what peace that I have found? He knows the way that I take. He is with me and I am here to celebrate what God is doing. Or do I not even know what this guy's talking about up front? But I want to know more. The receptivity of Jesus. Here's what's so sad, as we saw last week, his brothers even rejected this message. Many in this crowd will reject this message. I would suggest to you, six months from now, some of the members of this crowd will be those who are yelling at Jesus, what? Crucify him, crucify him. So Jesus talks about those who seek the will of the Father will be those who understand, who can discern whether if I'm of God or if I'm of myself. 
Fourth piece of this, the humility of Jesus in verse 18. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. There is no unrighteousness in him. So we see this, these two groups of people, the Pharisees who had been teaching, the false prophets of old, the false prophets of current have been proclaiming something. But why had they been proclaiming it? For their own glory. The word translated glory means honor, recognition of status or performance. In other words, it's this idea that I want you to, I want you to look at me. Jesus says there's this group of people in verse 18 who speaks from himself and seeks his own glory. We see that throughout the scriptures of false prophets of yesteryear. Balaam, I might remind you of. The Pharisees of Jesus' day in Matthew 23 are described this way. But they do, listen to this, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by men. They love to be promoted and put up on a pedestal and say, look at me. Here comes rabbi so-and-so. Yes, it's me. I have arrived. They love to be right, reverend, doctor, etc. I love a place of honor. Standing joke at our former church was, and a lot of urban churches, not just urban churches, I'm going to put that on urban churches. There's, there's a spot in the parking lot for pastors and it says, pastors parking only. And I used to say, man, if you guys ever do that to me, there's no pastors. I'm nothing special. Pastors, but these guys love it. They want it. They seek their own glory. Third John 1 9, John talks about Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them in the church. Come on, brothers and sisters, let's be honest. There's people who love to shine in the church for various reasons. All you got to do is talk to them for a couple minutes and you can figure it. it's not hard. I speak for a living, but I also listen and I just like, oh, I can see who you're interested in. You know what their mantra is? I love me some me. You know how I know you love you some you? Because all you talk about is you. Oh, I did this in oh, 1952. I graduated. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be a long one. I'm going to get their whole life story, all they've done. I can give you my testimony. I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God. I ain't nothing. Don't, 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 don't emulate me. Emulate Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1 talks about this whole idea. Paul's dealing with the Corinthians, and he says there at the end of chapter 1, let anyone boast, let them boast in the Lord. He's talking about salvation there. There's no, we have, you tell me, what do we have to boast in in our life? The cross of Calvary. That's it. What do we have to glory in? The cross of Calvary. What Jesus Christ has done on our behalf that we could never do ourselves. Jesus says there's a group of people that only want it for themselves. Is that Jesus, though? False prophet is very materialistic. We read in the scriptures in Luke 9, 58, son of man has no place to lay his head. Oh, those false prophets and those popular preachers, they love to be served. Man, I've seen and show you guys videos and stuff that you would make you fall out of your seats that pastors do on Sunday mornings such as this to promote themselves. But the son of man wraps a towel around his waist, fills a basin with water, and plays the role of a slave and washes his disciples' feet. That's Jesus. 
He doesn't come to seek his own glory. And if anyone came who deserved to seek their own glory, it would be Jesus. It wouldn't be these Pharisees. It wouldn't be these false prophets. It wouldn't be these religious shysters that we see in pulpit day after day after day after day. There's a website I came across. I love second service. It's called Preachers and Sneakers. I just find like weird stuff. Preachers and Sneakers. And at first I was like, okay, just preachers are wearing sneakers. That's kind of a big deal, I guess, you know. You know, but that wasn't the point of the article. It's the kind of sneakers that they were wearing and the cost of the sneakers. And I was flabbergasted. Guys are wearing like 2,000, 5,000. I said, first of all, how can you sell a pair of sneakers for that amount? And what fool is going to buy them? Well, the fool happened to be a pastor. Pastors. I'm just amazed. I'm like, what, what, are we seeking glory in our... When's the last time a pair of shoes saved somebody? Jesus is humble. Philippians 2 tells us what? He's humble to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus says, my teaching is, is humble. You will see humility in me because I point to another. Brothers and sisters, can you, can you serve me? Can you help me that if you ever see the teaching from this pulpit become about me, that you hold me accountable to say, David, you should be pointing us to Jesus? Can you, can you serve me? Can you serve the body? Can you love on one another enough to say, I'm going to hold the pulpit, the Sunday school class, the women's ministry, men's ministry accountable to proclaiming Jesus Christ? Can you do that? Jesus is humble, points men and women not to himself, but to the one who sent him. Listen to what he says about himself in verse 18. He, speaking of himself, is true. He's faithful. He's reliable. As opposed to the one who is false, Jesus is saying, I am the one who is true. I am the personification of truth. He is the one. I myself am true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. He's speaking of himself. No sin, no unrighteousness. So we see capability of Jesus, authority of Jesus, receptivity of Jesus' word, humility of Jesus, the veracity of Jesus, the accuracy, the truthfulness of Jesus. Let's look at these few verses in verse 19. Did Moses, did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you carries out the law? Jesus is reminding them of something. Moses gave you the law to keep and you're holding me accountable. You're angry with me for allegedly not keeping the law by breaking the Sabbath. You're mad at me for that, but you're breaking the law. You're not keeping the law because why? You seek to you seek to kill me. Jesus is telling them the truth about this. He is accurately prescri- uh, describing what they're going through. He understands that this group is, has been so self-righteous. And here's what we know that the Jews did with the law. And it impacted the people. What did they do with the Ten Commandments? They said, we can't keep them. So as opposed to falling on their knees in mercy, saying, I can never do this. What do they do? We're going to change the law a little bit. We're going to make it more palatable for us. And in particular, the Sabbath. Because if I can can be self-righteous, if I can keep not the Sabbath itself, but the subsequent laws that I've created regarding the Sabbath, I can do that. Then I'll be self-righteous. Pharisees thought that. You realize that the Pharisees thought the righteousness was in and of themselves. And the people began to have that same idea. Righteousness is found in me. 
Self-righteousness, according to Robert Murray McShane, listen to this, is the largest idol of the human heart. The idol which man loves most and God hates most, self-righteousness. I begin to think that there's something good in me in and of myself. Spurgeon says, beware of self-righteousness. Listen how he describes this. I love it. The black devil of licentiousness destroys hundreds, but the white devil of self-righteousness destroys thousands. They are very evident. We, we know who the drunkards are. We know who the lustful men and women are. We know who the adulterers are. We can tell who the liars are, the ones who are addicted to drugs and who have all these issues. Oh, man, we can, man, that's what you want to avoid. But the self-righteous are cleaned up. They got it together. They're okay. I'll see, they don't have that outward stuff. All their stuff's on the inside. But Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You talk to the self-righteous long enough, you'll know. They keep the law. They think they keep the law, but they don't even know the law. They have no clue. By the way, brothers and sisters, what was the law to do? Is the law bad? Not at all. The law is good. Why do we say the law is good? This, this isn't hard. Why is the law good? Let, let me ask you a second question that will help you with that one. Why is the law good? Who gave us the law? Why is the law good? God gave it to us. It's good because God gave it to us. What does it do? I want you to picture the mirror. And this is a true story. I was with grandkids yesterday and my my daughter took a picture of me. First thing I noticed, because I'm so humble, um, was, man, I got a lot of grace here and here. So unlike you guys who have to go to barber shops, I don't have to do that. I pull out my Mach 3 and it's gone. Well, guess what I have to do? I have to look in the mirror. The law is a mirror that shows me what? I'm a sinner. But what if I would have told you, here's how you get rid of the sin. You take the mirror off the wall and you begin to, I shave my head with the mirror. You say, no, David, the mirror only shows you what your sin is. You need something else to remove the blemishes. See, God established that completely or perfectly in Christ, but he even had contingencies for them in the Old Testament, didn't he? Remember the scapegoat? Lay your hands on here and send it off into the wilderness. Not just that, your sins are are distant from you. What was the other sacrifice at Passover? We We spread the blood, the propitiation for sin, the satisfaction. God had always made provision until the ultimate one who would pay for sin. The law only shows us our sin. That's a good thing. And has us cry what? Mercy. Mercy. And God says, I have had mercy on you. My son, trust in him. Believe him. Purpose of the law is to show us our sin and to fall on our knees for grace and mercy. So Jesus identifies, tells the truth to this crowd in three different ways. Number one, he points out the hypocrisy of the self-righteous. You say you keep the law, but you seek to kill me. Yeah, you ever met a self-righteous person? That's what they are. They will, self-righteous person is very good about seeing your sin. They can see you through and through, but they have a hard time seeing their own. Boy, if you ever want an accountability partner, please don't get someone that is self-righteous. You'll be very tired because they'll point out all that's wrong with you, but they're very hypocritical about their own stuff. That's not me. Second, 
the deception of the self-righteous. They don't even understand that they're not keeping the law. Jesus says in verse 20, or the crowd answers, I'm sorry, in verse 20, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. Jesus, I, I did one deed and you marveled. See, they miss it here. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it's from Moses, because it's from the father. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. So what's this all about? When a child was born, he was to be circumcised on the eighth day. Now, if the eighth day fell on the Sabbath, what did they do? They circumcised him. And Jesus is saying, and he's arguing from the lesser to the greater, you circumcise an eight-year-old, eight-day-old baby, and I made a man whole on the Sabbath, and you can't see that what I did was far greater than circumcising this eight-day-old baby. That's the deception. They are so blinded by their self-righteousness that they can't see. We keep this law perfectly, and it's not a problem. But Jesus healed a man. By the way, is this the only time they get upset with Jesus healing on the Sabbath? It is not. Several times. They're testing and they're waiting to see. Can you imagine someone being that self-righteous, that hypocritical, that they're waiting to say, what are you going to do on the Sabbath? Are you going to break it? So we can trap you. Amazing. That's the hardness of their heart. Lastly, the anger of the self-righteous. They seek to kill him. Jesus says, why, why do you seek to kill me in verse 19? Look at what he goes on to say. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Self-righteous people, at some point, they're going to get angry with you. If you're not fitting, you know, you're not doing what they expect you to do, you're not responding the way they think you were to respond, self-righteous are not going to be okay. I would suggest to you that self-righteous hate grace. They don't understand grace. They love legalism, though. They love the sets of rules of what you should be doing. They don't like that grace. You know why they don't like grace? In my humble opinion, they probably never experienced it. Most of my emails, I try to end it with rest and grace. Anybody not need grace today? You just said, you know, God, I got this one today. Gary, you wake up this morning. I got this one today, Lord. Don't need your grace today, Lord. Any, any, anybody? Okay, half a day. Lord, I only need half a day today. No volunteers yet. I'll, I'll whittle down until I get one of you. How about an hour? Lord, it's just, you know, noon to one. I'm being silly by asking these questions on it. We need grace all the time. Not the self-righteous. Not the proud. Let me give you some signs. It's not on the screen that will help you identify the self-righteous. And if I can maybe even say this, maybe it'll help you identify if you're being self-righteous. Four things I think I could give you much more, but four. Number one, a self-righteous person has a very low view of the Bible. A very low view of the Bible. They don't hold the Bible in high regard. They may not even know the Bible very well, but it's not important to them. A low view of doctrine. If, if they are concerned about spiritual things, it is very superficial. Very, very superficial. It is not deep doctrine. Number three, they have a low view of God. They really don't understand who God is. They don't really understand God's purpose in the world. And finally, 
They have a low, very low view of sin in their lives, but a very high view of sin in your life. In other words, they'll minimize their sins, but they'll maximize yours. And as I'm writing these things down this week for this sermon and thinking these things through, what do you think I was thinking? Is this me? And I, I, I checked them all and I said, no, none of these are me. You think that's true? You don't think I can look at people and like, man, how can you be? And I begin judging you because I'm not dealing with that one. My sins are over here. My point in saying that is, brothers and sisters, we can all be a little self-righteous. The beautiful thing about the gospel is it gives us opportunity to come back and say what? Lord, forgive me. Lord, expose my self-righteousness. Lord, expose into my heart right now as we're sitting here. Lord, I know that I tend to think about people this way. I tend to judge people this way. And we'll speak in judging here in this last point. The clarity of Jesus in verse 24. Do not judge according to appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. Um, Those of you who uh, are online, take the time this afternoon. Uh, I think it was Monday or Tuesday, uh, maybe in the middle of the week. There was an article on Christian Post, um, and it's it's basically a survey um, of which, which shouldn't surprise us. It's been increasing more and more each year. Uh, I think about thirty five hundred Christians were surveyed, and sixty percent of them said that Jesus isn't the only way. Evangelical Christians. Now they did it a couple of years ago, and it was about fifty percent. That's what I mean. It's increasing. More and more and more Christians believe that there's more than. Christians believe that there's more than one way to, to Jesus. Now, I said Christians because I would suggest to you, if you believe that, you may, not be, you may not be a Christian. Part of that survey asked the question, should Christians share their faith? Should we proselytize? What do you think the response was from those people? No, because we're being judgmental by saying our words are always right. And after this, this is what got me, this, this little part in the article, which drives me crazy whenever I hear it. Christians don't say it. Please don't say it. The Bible teaches us what? No, the, the, John 3.16 is no longer the verse. It's Matthew 7 verse 1 is the verse. Do not, the Bible does not teach do not judge, brothers and sisters. Do you know that? In that context of Matthew 7, it says judge righteously. It says, David, take the four by four out of your eye before you help the brother get the splinter out of his. It doesn't say don't judge. It says judge righteously. Jesus is saying here, judge righteously. In the context, who is he talking about? He's talking to the crowd, but who is he talking? Who should they be judging righteously? Jesus himself. The works that he is doing, judge righteously. Don't judge unjustly. Judge righteously. Look at the totality of my work. Remember, I told you that John has written these things. The whole title of this whole series of John is that you might believe and live. Believe Jesus and live. Judge him righteously. He is clear in his teaching. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, as we close out, what would your judgment be of Jesus? What is your judgment of Jesus today? What is your judgment regarding the teaching of Christ today? 
I love the words of an unbeliever. That might sound strange. Pontius Pilate. Because they're true, although he has an unregenerate heart. What are those words? I find no fault in him. I find Jesus to be completely righteous and just. He is the one he proclaims himself to be. He is the savior for sinners. He is the living water for those who were thirsty. He is the bread of heaven for those who are hungry. He is the one who can cause me to be born from above. He's the one. I trust him. Do you? Do you trust him? Are you seeking him with your whole heart? Do you desire him? Blessed are those who hunger, thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Filled with Christ today? Oh, you want some more? That means a longer sermon. Just kidding. He promises to provide, brothers and sisters. He promises to give the teaching of Jesus. I pray that you're impressed with what he says. And his authority, his clarity, his veracity, his truth in Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Father, I, I, I do not pretend to know all that my brothers and sisters in this room are facing. You do. You don't, I don't know if self-righteousness exists in their heart. They don't know what's existing in mine. You do. Father, you don't, I don't know if they have completely rejected all that has been proclaimed from your word. You do. It's my prayer, Father, that you will open eyes that they truly might see glorious light of the gospel in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ that they would believe him they wouldn't be this unbelieving crowd this these unbelieving religious leaders who are trusting in themselves but that they would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to your glory and for their good do that father show them father for your glory and for your honor alone in Christ Jesus name we pray Amen.